This is episode 151 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 151 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I have Shane Melanson on the show and shout out to Erwin Zito for connecting the two of us because Shane absolutely crushed it on this episode. It was a lot of fun interviewing him and uh, it's been a while since I really got the deep dive on development and that is Shane's specialty. He specializes in commercial development and we dig into the weeds in this episode about how he structures his joint ventures. He does an LP GP structure where he's the general partner and he has limited partner investors. Uh, he gets a certain cut for being the general partner as well as he invests in his own projects too. Uh, we talk about the development process, knowing what you're in for, knowing the game you're in and the risks associated and acting accordingly. So Shane has some interesting approaches when it comes to managing his due diligence process and taking that conditional period on his offer to purchase and really using that to vet his deals and make sure that they are going to work and they are going to be profitable. So it was a really, really intriguing conversation. And anyone thinking about taking it to that next level and wanting to scale up to the big leagues, I think this is the type of episode that you'll want to listen to. So uh, hopefully that's you and hopefully you enjoy this one. Just before we jump into it, I just want to ask you to take a quick moment if you haven't already done so and rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit the like, subscribe and notification bell and leave a comment below. Just let us know what you think of the episode. It'll help more people to find the show and hopefully help them as well. Thank you so much for your continued support. And without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into episode 151 with Shane Melanson. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Shane Melanson on the show to talk about. Shane, tell me what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> well, uh, I focus primarily on commercial real estate and new developments. So if you think your audience would be interested in that, we can, uh, we can, talk, about, we can talk about those two topics. Yeah, sounds great. Um, Shane, first off, remind me, how did we uh, how did we get in touch with each other? I think it was from Irwin. Irwin, okay. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. Did you all yeah. did you have a trailer park? Is that why uh is that what yeah. he well, yeah. yeah, we don't I mean I never called them trailer parks. We called yeah. them land lease communities. Okay. Uh, but we had uh two in Muskoka, one in um, just outside Gravenhurst and the other in, uh, Bracebridge. It's been a little while because I'm, I'm in Calgary. So yeah, we brought right. these back in 2011 and, uh, it was, it was a very, um, it was new for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd never owned mobile home parks or land lease communities and these were seasonal. So maybe a little bit different than what yeah. a traditional mobile home park would be where people are, um, living there year round, these were vacation properties. Right. And so, you know, we can talk about that if, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of want to go into your full story. Maybe you can give me kind of the higher level and then, and then we can get into the micro afterwards. So, I mean, going back to when you started in real estate investing, like when did that happen approximately and kind of what prompted that? Like, what was your background? Yeah, sure. So, um, I got into investing in real estate in 2003, 2004, right around then, uh, here in Calgary. Uh, what started that, if you will, I mean, if you, if I rewind back to um, growing up in Whitecourt, so small town just outside of, uh, I say just outside, two hours outside of Edmonton, and both my parents were teachers, and I was going to U, uh, UFC at the time. 
And I was back one summer and uh, we were approached by kind of a local investor, successful businessman. And he asked us to invest in um, an opportunity that he had. And it looked very attractive. Neither my parents nor I really knew how to evaluate that deal. Mm -hmm. And so my parents, uh, my dad specifically, uh, refinanced his house. Uh, They just paid it off to invest in this uh, opportunity. And, you know, he lost it all. And so that essentially kind of jaded me in terms of trusting people, investing. And I didn't, you know, at that point, I decided I wasn't going to necessarily just rely on someone else to invest my money or my parents' money for that matter. Right. Yeah. So I kind of went on a bit of a journey, obviously read the books, the, you know, the rich dad, poor dads, the, you know, went to a lot of conferences and was really just trying to, I wanted to understand like, like how people actually did it. Right. And so rain was probably one of the first, um, you know, back when Don Campbell was, was mm-hmm. mainly uh, running it. And he was, he was the first person that kind of explained real estate investing that I understood. So I got into fixing and flipping long-term rentals. Uh, I did some spec homes at the time. I was also, um, I kind of worked my way through various real estate related jobs. I was at urban planning at the city of Calgary. I was in the appraisal division. Then I went to sun life and I did commercial lending. And at that time I started to understand commercial real estate. And then probably three years in, uh, I met my my now wife, and her dad was um, is a very successful real estate developer. They have a publicly traded company, a REIT, and he kind of brought me under his wing and showed me commercial brokerage as well as syndications, raising money from right. a group of people to buy bigger deals. And so that's kind of a very short-winded way of explaining how I got to where I'm at. Awesome. So you said you were doing the Don Campbell thing. And what year would that have been approximately where you were buying in? 04. Uh, 04. So you, that all happened right around the same time. So yeah. You like got was... in. You, you, your dad lost some money and then you got in shortly thereafter. Well, that was my, my parents lost money okay. in 97, I think it was. And I had also okay. invested. Yeah. So okay. I went to university and I didn't invest. I literally, yeah. I worked about three or four jobs because everything that I'd saved to go to UFC that year uh, yeah. was gone, right? No more vehicle. Like it was. Yeah. And so uh, I saved a lot of money, didn't even trust the banks, had a safety deposit box and, uh, yeah. and, and really just uh, hoarded. Right. But at a certain point, you realize even working mm. three jobs, you're only going to make so much money. And so yeah. it wasn't it wasn't until I saw my buddy who I was actually renting his basement suite from, and he was he was working three days a week, owned mm-hmm. four properties, and I'm thinking like he's he's leveraging and getting ahead by doing much yeah. less than what I am doing. So yeah, I love those moments where you, you just take a step back and you kind of break it down on paper, like hey, yeah. very simply, what I'm doing will that get me where I want to go? That's right. And uh, so many people don't do that. They just keep doing what they're doing. Oh, I don't have time to think about that. I hear that one a fair bit from people who kind of aren't in this space. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting story. It's it's uh, interesting that you had that I don't trust people kind of moment because I had the same thing happen to me. I came into this whole side of things way too trusting and then went right. totally the other side after getting burned. But what a valuable lesson because then it sets you up for a, a life of success. If you could do that young and get those notions of misplaced trust out of your head and uh then you can actually start the real business yeah and and i'll you know i mean looking back it was laziness right we didn't we didn't even take the time it was it was a a lot of it based on emotion 
and FOMO and greed and thinking that this was going to be the path to quote unquote, like, you know, easy riches. And I mean, it was just, uh, it was, it was kind of ridiculous as I, as I kind of reflect back on it. But when you see a lot of smart and successful people doing it, it's easy to get lured in. Right. And knowing what I know now, uh, and you know, my father-in-law being a mentor of mine, like he questions everything, right. Just because someone says it doesn't mean that it's a fact. And so we are constantly, uh, that was one of the biggest things that I learned going from residential to commercial was just the amount of due diligence and time that went into a deal, right? It was, it was uh, a tremendous amount of um, effort, I guess, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, you know, if you're, especially if you're finding following the standard process with commercial financing, it, it is a huge process of due diligence and getting them everything they want. Um, yeah, it definitely gives you a different perspective on on how some people make a decision and you know what the the diligent way of making that decision would be. What did you uh, study in school? So at school, I got an econ degree with a minor in management, and it was a concentration in applied energy. So essentially, I wanted to get into oil and gas. Right? I mean, I grew up in a in a fairly oil and gas centric uh, town. And a lot of the people that I knew that were making good money were in that industry. When I got out in 03, I think oil was, I mean, it was even less than 20 bucks a barrel. Like it was, it was a very, um, a slow time here, here to try to get a job. And, uh, after about a year of kind of networking, that's where I ended up finally getting a job at the city of Calgary. And, if, if I recall, I was like the only person that didn't have a relative that was working at the city because it was a very junior level position. Um, but I was in the appraisal division and my job was essentially evaluate uh, or look at uh, transactions of houses in the same year. And what I started to notice is I, I, like they, the city wanted to know, are these fraudulent, right? But really what it was, was investors that were flipping. And, and I would see people making a hundred, 150, 200 grand. And when I went and talked to one of the more senior uh, assessors that he explained it to me. So I then went out, got my real estate license, got my mortgage license because, you know, I I knew what I was making at the city. I thought if I could do one of these deals a year, uh, I could potentially replace it. And, And so that's kind of what led me down that path. I love that. Yeah, actually, when I was when I was younger, I used to work as a dishwasher at a restaurant, and I saw these servers that worked like half as hard as I did, and they were making like tips, and they got gratuity in their paycheck, and yeah. they're kind of standing around talking all the time. I'm like, man, that seems way better. And I couldn't understand why everyone didn't just run and do that. So I just switched jobs and did the other sure. job and made more money. Yeah, um, it's funny. Yeah, once you see it, you got to act. Oh yes, what I was gonna say before is uh, my favorite Mark Twain quote is uh, whenever you find yourself on the uh, side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Yeah. And I, I think for real estate investors, that's just so true, right? Like we see everybody run for one type of deal or do all this and not to say you can't make a lot of money in that. Uh, but you do really need to question, is this what I should be doing? Or are a lot of people setting themselves up for something here? And, uh, yeah, and that's, and that's even one of the, um, I think I'd heard that quote, but I, I don't, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been able to, um, uh, articulate it like like you did. But one of the things that I do in my own investing business, and the reason I don't just specialize in multifamily or retail or industrial is because I'm constantly looking for where's the market going. And when I started getting into multifamily in 08, I think it was, uh, in the US, there wasn't a lot of competition, right? I mean, you can imagine back in 08, it was oh, yeah. a fun, financial meltdown, if you will. And so 
uh, there was no competing bids. There was no, you know, um, best and final offers. It was very much a kind of a blue ocean. And then by 2012, 2013, uh, people probably, you know, if, if you weren't in that, you, you wouldn't even realize that that's when it really started to heat up and it's just continued to, um, get more and more competitive. Now today, you know, I'm doing different things because that's where, you know, our strengths lie and there's less competition. Right. Yeah. Just kind of adjusting as you go. Like early on, did you come in with, with a bunch of money to do these kind of fix and flips back in 2003, 2004, or were you kind of leveraging really aggressively on that, that type of stuff? Um, so back then, I mean, I, I could buy a house for the first investment property I bought was 180,000 mm-hmm. and it was in a, you know, it's kind of an infill location here in Calgary. And so with 20% or 10% down, I think I was able to get into it with, with the help of a friend to co-sign on the mortgage. Uh, you know, 20 or 30 grand was all I really needed, plus my working capital. So I'd been pretty diligent, but no, I didn't, I was never given any money. I wasn't, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't have even a hundred grand. I probably started with 40,000, I think was my, my seed capital, if you will. Nice. So you just took that money and then did like a flip or a fix up and refinance yeah. and reuse that money? Was yeah, that a combo mainly, of those things? Uh, mainly flips at the beginning. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's a good way to build up your basic capital. Although it's getting harder these days, right? Like, do you, do you see an opportunity still today to do that same strategy in Calgary? Yeah, I think so. You know, like yeah. there's there's always opportunities. I mean, I see them every so often come across my desk. It's just a question as to how much time do you want to put into it, right? Like yeah. a flip, I know, is going to still take, you know, X amount of energy and time and bandwidth. So for me, I'd rather do a ground up build. Yeah, and I know that I might only do uh, two or three of those in a year, but it would be the equivalent of doing uh, thirty or forty flips, and I don't have to deal with the headache of, you know, fl- flipping is was fine, if you will, to just get a uh, foundational understanding of yeah. the market, and to your point, building up kind of a you know some seed capital, if you will. But if you're a professional and you're earning six mid six figures. You, you you're probably going to look at that strategy and it's not the right uh approach for you right because it's yeah. a very active um it's too hands on yeah it's it's you're you're trading time for money for sure mm-hmm. unless you can delegate enough of it but i mean obviously everyone has a different comfort level with that too um so what kind of builds are you doing now like ground up builds so we have a townhouse development that we are mm-hmm. uh, we just broke ground on we have several retail developments uh at various stages and uh, we have another uh, two projects under contract uh, at various you know levels that you know there would be larger developments, uh, townhouses, and another retail. Okay, and are these all through like your own company, or is this in a, you know a syndicate that you're you're raising funds for? Like how how's that structured? Yeah, they're generally syndicated deals, and I have different partners depending on the skill sets that are required. Usually on the retail and commercial, I partner with one individual. And then on the residential, I have another uh, partner that I, I work with. And the deals are syndicated in the sense that we'll go out to investors. As equity uh, or as debt? Well, what type of syndication? It, yeah, no, it's it's all equity. I don't even know if you could do a syndicated debt without being uh, uh, an exempt market dealer because now you're dealing with I could be wrong, but we used to be able to do it. It used to be um, allowed under like in Ontario under FISRA or FISCO before that. 
Um, you could syndicate debt. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my mother-in-law's got a mortgage brokerage. So I know they, yeah. they used to be able to do that all day long and raise tens of millions of dollars so quickly. And yeah, that all got regulated into the ground, of course. Uh, right. Now it's now it's equities, the more common, yeah, like yeah. exempt market product uh, type of thing. So yeah, they definitely speak in similar language here. So so syndicating everything as um, as equity, um, give me an idea, like what type of, can we run through like kind of back of the envelope numbers on one of these deals and what it would look like? Yeah, so I just had my my securities lawyer on uh, my coaching program, and so I want to be mindful of what I can and can't say on the on podcast. But yeah. I'll tell you about a deal that I have done in the past sure. because that would be uh, I don't think that that crosses any any lines. So okay. we uh, we went out and bought three acres of industrial land near the airport here in Calgary. Okay. And I'll just give you high level numbers because I want to be somewhat respectful of my, my investors as well. But let's say that land was 3 million bucks. Yeah. We built about, uh, just under 35, 36,000 square feet. Uh, and we sold them off as industrial condos. Okay. So just like you would sell an apartment building or, you know, you'd strata title it. So we sold off the industrial condo base. Yeah. And I want to say that it was. Uh, call it eleven and a half million dollars on the sale price. Our total cost was around nine and a half, and so yeah. you know, at the end of the day, our investors and and me as a general partner and my my business partner did did well. Yeah. So you you would have had so basically six and a half million of everything from the soft costs planning um, all the way through to construction complete Correct. and including your your borrowing costs, if any. Um, yep. to get to the end and then and then uh, whatever's left is kind of your, your profit there the profit yeah yeah so the, so there's a million and a half basically to be distributed between yourself and your your investor syndicate yeah and now i've talked to some people and you don't have to give specifics because i know it's a touchy thing uh but but basically the idea would be like do you does everyone treat it equally in units or do you have a special priority in terms of you and your partner get a special priority in ownership and then the others split a certain percentage of the ownership as well is, is well, that the idea? Well, typically, I'll just tell you. I mean, so mm-hmm. when I do GPs, GPLP structure, so as a general yeah. partner, I'm going to get 20 to 35% of the deal. Okay? okay. And then the limited partners get the balance of that. Now, I also invest my money as a limited partner, right? Yeah. So my equity okay. goes in as an LP. And so the LPs all get treated the same based on their percentage of the deal. And so in this case, I think we paid an 8% PREF. Right. So okay. the first money gets 8%. And that, you know, goes until we obviously make a distribution back to the investors. And then after that, that's your performance, right? Because mm-hmm. when you think about the amount of energy and effort that goes into yeah. finding these deals, like when we brought this to our investors, we had uh, 75 to 80% pre-sold. So we didn't go to our investors and say, this is an idea we have. Yeah. We said, this is the deal we have. This is the risk. And we've essentially mitigated the risk because if we sell nothing else, then we'll at least break even, right? The last 20% was the profit. Um, But we were able to get that 20% sold by the time we actually closed on the land. So we gave ourselves enough time during due diligence to get pre-sales, probably spent $30,000, $40,000 in due diligence. And so if you're going to risk that, like I've spent 30 grand on deals that never came together and I can't go back to a limited partner and ask for that. So I think people just need to understand like, you know, so usually if someone's never raised capital before, what happens is they, um, what's the word? 
they're like nervous to ask for like a syndication fee or, or like, am I, right. you know, am I worth this kind of money? Yeah. And I get that. Cause my first deal, I didn't earn anything as a, as a general partner. Right. But as we started to get a track record, investors now look at that and say, okay, you know what? I see the value that you're bringing and, and you've done very well by me in the, in the past. And so they look at it and say, yeah, this is a good um, investment. Great point about not asking for enough early on. I feel like everybody does that. Every JV partner always undervalues their work and their and their time on their early deals, and then figure it out really quick that this doesn't work. I got to charge a lot more than that. Yeah, and but I don't think that that's necessarily um, because I, I see the flip side too, where sometimes mm-hmm. someone is new, they don't have a track record, and they're asking yeah. for a lot, and it's like, okay, but you know of what, course. you're 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 competing for capital with a lot of very seasoned investors. And so you just want to understand where you lie and just be honest with yourself, right? In terms of like how much risk is there really in this deal? And sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And and that doesn't, you know, come uh isn't made aware until you're uh until you've done five deals or 10 deals. Yeah. And you can look back and say, wow, I can't believe that you know someone trusted me with their money. Like I'm I'm a person of high integrity, but I didn't appreciate the risk that we were taking on early on in those, in those projects and people with that have made money, generally speaking, understand that because they've been down the path, they've maybe been burned. And so they're looking at every investment with a very skeptical view is my experience. Yeah, exactly. If you've done this before, you know, it's not all roses. You really do have to be discerning about what you commit yourself to. What's um, what would this deal have looked like in terms of a timeframe? Like when did you, see the deal, sign the deal, close the deal. How did that process work? Yeah. So in, in commercial real estate, generally, if you see a deal, like you act fast. And so let's say we saw the deal on a Monday, we probably had an LOI out later that day or by Tuesday. Um, and so a letter of intent LOI, and then it probably took us two to three weeks to negotiate a formal PSA or purchase and sale agreement. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I believe we asked for four months of due diligence. And during that four months, that's when we did all of, obviously, the planning, the marketing, the site plans, talking to tenants, getting our pre-sales, raising capital, securing debt. And then it's, uh, I think it was a 30-day close. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was 16 months, I know, from the time that we raised the money to the time that we paid our investors back. So whatever that all equals out to probably okay. 18 months, something like that. So early on in that first several months, you had to come up with a deposit, which on something like that, would that have been like a hundred grand? Yeah. An initial deposit would be yeah. hundred. And then you needed your due diligence, which you figured was probably in the 40 to 50. And that was basically doing all your urban planning. So you were, you were getting like site plan done up. You were getting all the engineering done up, drainage. No, not even going there. Like you're just talking about zoning and land entitlement and all that. Z- zone, no, see. Okay. So we bought land that was already zoned already zoned. Okay. Yeah. So if you're going into rezone, that can take nine months here. And so, so the land was zoned and we had met with the city to make sure that what we were suggesting would work, but we didn't submit a DP at that stage. So nothing, nothing yet. Okay. So just intro. So how to, I guess I'm just wondering where that, that 40 would be allocated. Would that be into an appraisal and a survey and a couple other things? Like what else is, uh, is going, you know, Yeah, I mean, we didn't, yeah. So obviously all your due diligence, right? You got to get geotech, environmental. Yeah, yeah. environmental. Okay. Yeah. 
And then the biggest thing was working with our architect because right. we needed to continually go back and change our site plan and renderings and, mm-hmm. and whatnot to be able to show to prospective tenants. Right. Because I was fixated, and this goes back to Muskoka, because we were sold, like, buy it and you'll have a lineup of buyers. Mm-hmm. And that was not the case. Like when we had Muskoka, uh, those two projects, we were spending about 250000 a year in marketing and sales. We're sorry, just, just in marketing, just to be able to get people to the resort, to be able to sell them cottages, mobile homes. Okay. And, and so I took that lesson and I said, I um, understand, right? The brokers that brought us the deal said, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's pent up demand for people to mm-hmm. buy small bay condos up here. That was the thesis. I said, okay, well, you've got now four months to demonstrate that to us. And by that, I want actual money in the bank, obviously held in trust. But I want to make sure that these are real buyers, not yeah. letters of interest and you know lots of outs and whatnot. And so the majority of the time that we spent and the money that we spent was to verify that demand. And how would you verify? Because you can't actually sell something that doesn't yet exist, right? Like you yeah, can only you can, get you can interest, get right? You can yeah. get interest. Okay. And we, these were these were leasing offers, basically people no. offering to lease. No, they're offering to purchase. Yeah, because there were condos. Right. right. But it, until you actually have your condo registered, there's nothing actually to put on, you know, in terms of a condo ID number or any of that. Right. That's right. But you can yeah. still have an offer to purchase once that condo plan is, yeah. is in place. So okay. it was an offer. It was not for lease because they okay. had to know what the purchase price was going to be. Right. And so here's the okay. deposit. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So very, very cool. All right. So you established demand, you were sure of it. And this is what I love about development is like it's big plays, but you actually have to be okay with spending money and not getting a return on several deals to find one that does return and can potentially return quite well. And it makes it all worthwhile, right? It makes all the ones that lose a little bit worth it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just had to walk away from a deal that we'd spent four months. Mm -hmm. This one, we didn't spend as much money on. We We had one tenant, but we discovered that there was going to be much higher due diligence, much higher. And I, I have to be very careful about what I say uh, just because of legal issues and stuff like that. But the cost is going to be a lot higher than we had anticipated to actually mm-hmm. be able to deliver that building. And right. so, and it wasn't the building itself. It was other uh, factors. And yeah, we walked away from, I don't know, after legal and architects and consultants, probably 20 grand. Okay. So, you know, like people might think that's a lot of money or not a lot of money, but when you actually have to stroke a check for 20 grand and you, yeah. you just, just like, it's gone and there's zero to show for it. Those, those days, uh, you know, they're not fun. <laughs> those aren't the fun ones. No, that's why you got to have that confidence in yourself, right? You obviously know what you can do when you do find a deal and yeah. that, that makes up for it. Um, so I want to stick with this a little bit longer. Um, so you, you did your due diligence, you get to closing. Did you, how long from when you closed, until you had site plan approval and your building permits approved? I mean, I'm going back a few years, but it was probably six months. So six months for all of that. And were you you fairly comfortable when you had your initial consultation with the people in site plan when they said, hey, this is what we would need to see from you? Were you confident that nothing's going to change? Like if they're telling me this is what they need, if I get them that, then they're going to be happy and we'll move forward. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a certain level of... Un, um, there's going to be uncertainty, right? Yeah. Until you actually submit a formal DP and then it's circulated at the city mm-hmm. in terms of like, 
okay, so roads comes back and they look at, so here we have what's called a DSSP. So that's really your stormwater. And okay. so how is that water going to be treated? And what are the elevations and how is this all tying together? And what are the internal road works? So this uh, deal was unique in the sense that it was like a master plan community. And there was a bunch of um, uh, shared roadways. Mm-hmm. And so it was also, I don't know why, but when we registered the, the condo plan, we actually had to get agreement from all of our neighbors. And if you ask me why, I can't tell you okay. why, because I don't remember all the specifics, but I just know that we had to uh, go to about 30 different neighbors. And the reason for that is because some of the other people had sold off as condos. Okay. And so it was, you know, a four, uh, how long did it take us? Probably six weeks of going to meeting with people. They all had to be notarized, which means that just because they wanted to sign it, they had to go and meet with a lawyer. And it was, you know, so we had to put a lot of effort into getting our uh, condo plan finally um, registered, if you will. And so there was, there was a lot of, you know, every deal you learn things and mm-hmm. then it just becomes like, uh, you know, you just kind of expand your knowledge base and then what you're, um, what you can handle in terms of stress and struggle. Mm-hmm. And so, when I started off doing flips, like my, you know, like I could handle this much stress, you know what I mean? Like everything that was outside of what I thought was going to happen was just, you know, uh, it caused me sleepless nights. And then over time, you just continue to build that uh, ability to handle uncertainty and unknowns. Yeah. It's well, it's more because you expect it, right? As you go through this, you're like, Oh, that's a normal part. We're just going to have things come up, but I'll just budget for it. That's what, that's how I've always broken that down. You just start to budget for the unknown. You, you budget for the unknowns. And, and I, I think that you just accept the fact that you're a problem solver, right? Yeah. Like if you're doing developments or value add, you just mm-hmm. appreciate that there's a reason that you're going to have this payday at the end of it, right? Like you have to create enough value. And obviously on the development, there's more um, problems that you're solving. But earlier when you had asked if we went in for a rezone, developers that take raw land and take it to entitled there's even higher levels of risk and uncertainty there. And so obviously, you know, there's a reason that there's not many of them that have lasted, you know, 50 years. Well, and and the other part of that is like, if you're going to take on that risk, you have to, there needs to be a a bigger win, right? Like if you're willing, there's gotta be a, there's much more risk. Therefore there must be a much higher return on investment. So, so obviously the, you know, a couple you're going to do and you're going to find out that doesn't work. Maybe you're, you sell the land again, uh, or maybe you work out something creative with a seller where you can try and rezone it while they still own it. Um, you know, something along those lines. I know a guy who did that and it was incredibly profitable for him. Sure. Um, but, uh, if you can't do that, then you're basically just going to have to get paid for your risk. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as long as you know, your game, as long as you know what game you're playing and and how you need to be compensated, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So with with this, when you were going through your process, trying to get your development agreement um, signed by the city, you would have had your own engineering done, right? For drainage and stormwater and all that. So are you saying that they would push back on what you provided them with yeah. and say that's not good enough? Yeah, absolutely. The city probably came back uh, three times, right? So the DTR reviews, the detailed team reviews, so I think that's what they call them here in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, they would come back and say, uh, okay, so based on your civil, based on your structural, based on your energy model, whatever it is, right? They come back and they say, here's where it's deficient, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, this doesn't allow for a fire truck uh, turning radiuses, or where is the landscaping? Or I mean, it's just, 
a lot of it's important and some of it is kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, but you just have to to work with the city and, and make sure that your architect and consultants and general contractor are all on the same page. And at the end of the day, they had to we, we just had to reverse engineer how to get a product that yeah. would be profitable because that's the other part. When you pre-sell your entire building, you fix your upside. Yeah. Right. And I was okay with that because you have to remember this is 2018 and the market in Calgary was not going up. Right. I mean, if you're in Toronto or Vancouver and the market's going up 5% a year, you might play the game of saying we're okay to, to reserve some of our building. Uh, We were not playing that game. We were in like a flat to declining market. And I said, I want to oversell this building so that we don't get jammed at the end because I know that the profit is in the last little bit. So um, yeah, I don't know. That was a bit of a tangent, but no, I, I mean, I love the perspective and keep going on tangents because lots of good stuff come from them. So, um, yeah, you were just trying to figure out all your costs. Did you have a certain level of certainty? Like, did you have a general contractor that you hired that, that was giving you fairly firm pricing on the actual build once you got all the, um, development agreement nailed down? Yeah. So the way we did that deal, and I'm happy the way we handled it, we met with, six different GCs, general contractors. Mm -hmm. And we showed them what we were looking to build. And obviously, you know, it's, there's going to be lots of subject twos when people give you cost costing, but uh, we told them we need to be in this bandwidth, right? I don't know, 120 to 140 a foot. And, uh, and some people just came in like way higher and some people came in, uh, you know, close to that. And, and then we just started to develop a relationship and, and really started to work at, through in terms of like, okay, so how do we get down to those, that pricing, if you will. And uh, since then, I've actually uh, partnered up with a, with a general contractor because I just know how important it is mm-hmm. uh, to find one that you trust, one that understands it, gets in early at the pre-con stage so that they can help manage all the consultants and the architects. And uh, I think you had mentioned it earlier, but it's like understanding like what you want, what, what you're good at and what you're not so good at. Right. right. I mean, I understand from a development perspective and probably to a layman, I understand construction, but when you get right down to the nuts and bolts and looking at drawings and how all this unfolds, that's not necessarily my strong suit. My business partner has been in construction for 25 years, so he gets it. But even then we're busy negotiating leases, working with the city. And so for us to spend a hundred hours going through drawings is probably not the best use of our time. Right. And so we will bring someone in early. It's still going to get tendered, but it's tendered out to sub trades, not tendered out to five different general contractors. Yeah. That, and that makes a lot of sense. Like if you know that you have some sort of transparency or like, th- does he do like just a percentage cost on, on the builds in addition, or do you guys just work it out your profit? Like neither of you guys get paid for what you do, but it all works out nope. in the end. No. So we'll do a fixed price. Okay. Um, lump sum or whatever they, you know, whatever the terms are that are used. Okay. But is it? But the banks want to see a fixed price, right? Fixed price. Okay, they, so not a percentage. They want to see a fixed price. No, not okay. we're not doing cost plus. That's mm-hmm. right. Okay. Good to know. I appreciate you giving me all these these nuts and bolts. It's just good for perspective for a lot of people who have never done this kind of thing. And uh, but I just want to make a mention. Yeah, I'll just make a mention. Like just because you have a a fixed price, mm-hmm. um, like when you like. We didn't talk about this yet, but like when you start to understand the game, whether it's the game of development or commercial real estate or fixing and flipping, you realize very quickly that a fixed price is uh, it's good to an extent, but it's only as good as the drawings that are being provided. Right. And so 
Um, I think sometimes developers have a false, like if, if they're a new developer, they have this false sense, like I did. I'm like, oh, it's a fixed price. We're, we're, we're set. Well, no, because there's, if, if you read through those contracts carefully and you really understand them, usually CCDCs, yeah. um, you realize that uh, most of the risk is actually back on the developer, right? Mm-hmm. I'll give you a good example. So our steel that we had ordered, right in it, it says uh, tariffs not included. Well, for whatever reason, tariffs went up like 25%. So when you order half a million dollars of steel mm-hmm. and, your, and your tariff goes up by a hundred grand, like that, that, that just gets passed on to the developer. That's not part of the fixed price contract. And so I didn't know that. And I, you know, I was, I was actually pretty pissed off when I found out, but then you start to realize I'm like, okay, what else don't I know? Okay. Yeah. What about the drywall? What about this? What about, and so right. obviously in, in a environment that we're in today, uh, you really want to understand your cost structure and your supply chain, your procurement, yeah. like what's coming in and when, and what it's going to cost. Yeah, you mentioned it a lot about your drawings, but also a lot, uh, a lot about even your soil and the conditions that they find when they dig a hole, right? Like that's one of the biggest things I've seen for unexpected costs. Like, Oh, we got to dig down further. That's expensive when you got to dig down further. Right. Some people don't know. Right. Um, one guy was helping out, uh, for building his own custom home. We dug, we dug the hole and it was uh, all disturbed soil. So we just had to keep digging, you know, Oh, boom, $20,000, not expected. There you go. Add that onto the price. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a game of the unexpected, right? Like, again, if you're not comfortable with the unexpected, it's not going to work. You got to find peace with that. But uh, I like what you said, like what, what else don't I know? Um, getting into the fixed end price is not something that I think people around here are thinking about in, in Ontario, right? Cause they, they see everything going up and up and up and like, why would I want to presell? And even sure. some stuff I'm doing now in Florida, you know, the, the, the sentiment from realtors down there is we don't want to sell until it's built because if we sell before it's built, we're leaving money on the table. But of course there's always risk with any of that. And uh, well, yeah. And, and I'll just touch on, I mean, we needed a certain amount of pre-sales just to get financing. Yeah. Right. That's the big so, thing. You got to do it. Yeah. So unless you're, uh, you're able to build it completely mm-hmm. on spec and you have deep pockets, uh, we were not in that position, right. Cause we would have had to raise more mm-hmm. money and that money was more expensive than, uh, raising it yeah. from our investors, then uh, we would have. Um, it, it just made sense for us to hit our pre- our pre-sale threshold, and it allows me to sleep easier at night. Look, I I get it. I mean, there's it. it yeah, oh, I hear you. M- markets change, and there's yeah. lots of uh, reasons people will do various things. But um, yeah, it just it's it's up to your risk threshold and tolerance and expertise. I, I love that you said that. It took me forever to figure out the. Uh allows me to sleep at night. That's such a personal question. And one everyone needs to ask themselves, there is no right or wrong investment. There are levels of risk, but there's what you can be okay with and, and what it means to your greater portfolio, right? Like if you're doing all kinds of stuff that is volatile and, and who knows what the sale price is worth at the end, and you're locking yourself or you're not locking yourself in, but maybe the market goes down. If that's going to break you, then maybe that's not the path for you, but everybody has to answer that question for themselves, obviously. Yeah. Um, okay. You want to tell me a little bit about what you did over here in Muskoka? So I guess you did that all at a distance. You were out in Calgary and you were investing here in Ontario. Well, yes and no, in the sense that, uh, we did it from a distance, but I was there probably a hundred plus nights a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stayed at the, the Marriott, I think in Gravenhurst, that was like, we, you know, they, I'd stay there for a month at a time sometimes. And, uh, that was, that was, 
not what I planned and not what, you know, was in the, was in the playbook, so to speak, in terms of executing on that deal, but it was necessary. And it's, it's kind of helped me to refine how I invest today. So people, you know, I've, I've went into the U S and across Canada in terms of investing, but uh, with three kids, that's not um, I'd rather stay closer to home to be able to manage the deals that I'm working on now. Okay. So we'll set that aside. So is there any, like, so we bought the properties and the a few things that we really needed to do. One, we had excess land on both of them. One was 1,100 acres, one was 53 acres, and we knew that we could expand, but we needed to get uh, site plan approval. And that was an uh, interesting experience in terms of working with consultants. And uh, I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but like they kind of looked at us with unlimited uh, resources. And uh, unfortunately, it probably took the better part of three years to be able to get the uh, site plan approval at the larger site. The first one was much quicker and uh, and we were able to go from 110 to 280 sites, but the other one was call it 300 and we went to, uh, it was over a thousand. I, I just remember that. And, and these were both functioning trailer parks at the time. I know you're not referring to them as that, but is that what they were when you were buying yeah, them? They, they were, yeah. they were RV parks, RV parks. Okay. Yeah. So there was a combination of yeah. mobile homes and RVs that were parked there yeah. and people had used them for a long time. Right. That was, that was like the, yeah. uh, you know, the, probably a waiting list to get in, but they were gotcha. in need of a lot of capital to bring them up to proper standards. So, okay. So you were having to put in infrastructure as you expanded right. these, like you're talking about new septic systems and Everything. connections and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Even okay. the existing ones we had to upgrade. Had to replace. Yeah. So they were, and that can get, a, can get very expensive getting into all that. That that was probably where we made the biggest yeah. mistakes. Underestimating that A, we had to do that and B, what it would actually cost, you know, yeah. because if you've never done it, you're kind of working off of a pro forma that people give you, but then you miss things. And all of a sudden you thought it was going to cost 10 and cost 20 while well, you multiply that over a hundred and that's real money. So, okay. And then what was your idea here? Like when you saw this, what was the idea, the light bulb that turned on in your head that said, I could make money here. What was the, like the high level idea? <laughs> well, it actually wasn't my idea. Uh, I was, uh, I was pretty keen on going into the U S and buying apartments and if I could rewind the clock, I would have done that. Um, so gentlemen that we had kind of got to know each other, he was bullish on mobile homes and I was bullish on multifamily. And so I took him down to Houston and Dallas and we toured around and he liked it. And then he took me out to uh, Ontario because he had, he had lived there for a while and he showed me these opportunities. And I guess for lack of a better word, he was a better persuader or salesman. And so he sold me on why we should be doing these uh, deals. So it, it's kind of funny how deals come together, right? You see it, you put in an offer, and before you know it, you're into the deal, right? You're, you're, you know, you're, you're in like this, and then it just kind of creeps up where it's like, wow, I've spent four months and 20 grand, and now yeah. you're, you're, you're committed. So we looked at it, and there was no question that there was an opportunity and value mm-hmm. add, and we could see what some of the other people were doing. And so we thought if we could apply some some capital to these underserved uh, resorts, uh, we could do well. And that thesis has proven very, uh, ha- has proven out. Okay. There's, there's, yeah. there's no question. It's just, if you live there, that's a different dynamic, right? For me to be away and manage yeah. these properties, 
people don't talk about those aspects of a deal. And yeah. so, um, well, I think know, a lot it, of people get property management for normal real estate investing, but that's not really what we're talking about here. Like you're talking about strategic vision and what to do and where we're going to take this. And without putting your eyes on something that can be challenging. Well, and we had a team of 40 people, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got, um, you know, I, I'd never managed a lot of people before. And so I got a, uh, an MBA in marketing, sales, human resources, you know, firing people, hiring people. Like it was, it was it was business uh, one one if you will, and uh, you realize where you're you know lacking and uh, yeah. and not very good and and but it just makes you know at the end of the day yeah. we we had no choice and it did work out right we took them from call it eight and a half million to seventeen million in about three and a half years obviously there was some money that went into that but our investors did very well and uh, the general partners didn't do quite as well because of the way we structured the deal but you know, that, that was our, uh, that was our fault. So, right. I, I hear you. Okay. So in terms of what you guys actually did, you took these different lots on the park and you you did longer term leases on them. Is that, is no. that the idea? No, no, because they were, the zoning would only allow for seasonal. So you could only really do one year leases. Yeah. So what we did is we, we marketed and sold cottages, mobile homes, and we had to put in amenities to encourage people from Toronto primarily mm-hmm. to want to come up there. So the the pitch, if you want to call it that, was, look, you can own a timeshare here for 200K or whatever the number was. Uh, you could buy your own place or you could own, you know, six to a thousand square feet, depending on whether or not you got a double wide. And I mean, they're very nice. Like, okay. I stayed in them. Like once we got operational, I would actually uh, live in the cottages at the resort. Uh, We built probably a $800,000 clubhouse. We built a pool. Like we really wanted to make it attractive. Both of these were on the water. And so there was the potential, like one of them had a quite a nice Marina. We put a lot of money into that. So we front ended uh, a significant a significant amount of capital to bring people in, and then obviously you know lots on the water. They're going to be you know more, uh, but really when we're selling the cottages, we're breaking even, making maybe making a little bit of money. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it was really the residual income, and so when someone pays eighty grand for, I, I keep calling them cottages, uh, they're likely not going to want to move that right. When you put a ten thousand dollar deck on and landscaping, and you make it look like it's yours. Really, the only thing you're going to do is sell that to someone else. I mean, if that if you want out. Okay, so so help me understand just what you're what you were expecting. So you sold them the the eighty thousand dollar RV cottage, and at that point, did they have any guarantee of what your rent's going to be next year, and the year after, and the year after? Not really. Um, I'm not trying to be elusive. It's just that you, you we couldn't guarantee, but that was a risk that a lot of uh, buyers had. Right? It's like, okay, what if? You know, you're gonna sell me this. It's yeah. four grand, and what happens if you jack it to ten thousand? Right? Yeah. And it's like, well, if we do that, you're all gonna leave, right? Or you're gonna stop paying. So we can't yeah. be stupid about it. And we tried to give people as much certainty as we could by, um, with, but with staying within the laws, right? Because they right. are, I can't remember the term that's used in Ontario, but um, when it's seasonal, it's it's like you can only sign up to a one year uh, agreement. 
right? Well, and every municipality is different, right? Like just what they specify in the zoning that you can or can't do. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just picked one up. We haven't closed yet, but it says max. Uh, I think you're allowed to operate seven out of 10 months, not seven out of 12, seven, seven out of 10 months for whatever reason. I don't get it, but uh, yeah. can I gross that up to a 12 month uh, number? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just kind of interesting little distinctions, but it's every municipality. It's not just one city, or one province. Like they all like kind of write things a little bit differently. So you got to be yeah. watching out for it for sure. Um, Shane, this is like so much interesting information. I haven't got to deep dive on development like this with somebody for a long time. Um, is there anything you would have wanted to share that we didn't get to that, that maybe you want to cover? Um, I mean, I think we talked uh, uh, about it enough, but all in, in roundabout ways. But what I would say is if I could leave, you know, uh, your listeners with like just understanding the game that they're playing, I think is so important. And a metaphor that I've just started to use because I've just started uh, playing chess with my daughter is once you understand the rules of the game, then you understand why people do what they do. Right. Because if you like, when I first started playing chess uh, first, it was, it was one thing to play with your daughter and then my father-in-law and people that had a little more experience. And then you go online and you play these like really uh, rapid games, they call them. And you realize that uh, it takes me anyways, a long time to process all the different players on the board and how people are coming at me, if you will. And so the longer and the, and once you have that foundation, then you can start to build on that. And if you're going to get into development or commercial real estate, like getting a a firm understanding of the rules and why people do what they do, I think is, is key. And I don't think you ever stop learning, right? Like it's like a grand master is still learning and refining their skills but they are refining nuances. Whereas if you're a beginner, then, you know, every new thing that you learn is going to give you kind of exponential growth, if you will. Right. Yeah. I I like that. I mean, definitely never stop learning, right? We're always going to be refining what we know. Um, There was one thing I was going to ask you again, it's slipping my mind, but uh, I know we've covered a lot here today. So if um, if anybody wanted to kind of follow your journey and kind of follow you or, or reach out to you, like whatever you're comfortable with, uh, if, you, if you have an Instagram or if you have a, a contact you want to share, um, let yeah, me have I mean, it. My, my website's the best place because then okay. they can go to YouTube and Instagram sure. and my podcast. So it's just my name, Shane Melanson, dot com, And that's the easiest way to find me. Okay. I will share that in the show notes so that people can, uh, can find you there. Shane, thanks so much for doing this. It was great meeting you and talking to you and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Please make sure to share this episode far and wide. Help it help more people. I really appreciate you tuning in. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>